Welcome to Extraordinary, my retelling of the story of my almost rape and violent stabbing in 2018 from my perspective, as well as from the perspectives of some of my closest friends and family. My hope is that this story and the stories of the extraordinary people who helped me along the way will inspire a better understanding of the effects of extreme violence, PTSD, and recovery on individuals and the people supporting them. Thank you so much for listening. And you can follow along on our Instagram account, extraordinary.podcast, to see the photos, videos, and helpful resources that correspond to the content of every episode. And please, 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 if you are a survivor or someone suffering from the effects of sexual assault, violence, or PTSD, take care while listening. Hey, you guys, welcome back. Um, So in the last episode, um, it's March of 2020, and the trial is finally supposed to happen after two years, um, and COVID hits. So I, I, I was pretty heartbroken when I got the news that the trial was um, postponed again. I know we talk about it and joke a little bit about it in the last episode, but like the juxtaposition of getting closure and having my family and having my friends and being supported and having this kind of climactic moment that I'd been building toward for so long to being alone in my apartment, scared, I'm unsure not only about the future of the case, but unsure about the future of the world. Um, And we were all feeling that way. I know we all talk about it, that it was, there were things about it that were kind of a treasure and then things about it that were really, really hard. So I don't want to divulge too much into COVID because we all have our unique experiences and we're all probably very tired of hashing through them at this point. And my family could tell that I was um, pretty sad about it. One one cute thing that my older brother did was send me, because my birthday is also in March. um, March 21st was my birthday and all this was happening. Um, One cute thing that my older brother did was send me this uh, birthday video. CDC recommends you wash your hands for 20 seconds or the amount of time it takes to sing happy birthday twice. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dearie. Happy birthday to you. So we all made it through it in our own way. Um, But it wasn't until I think the summer of 2020 that they started to talk about bringing cases back. It was still unclear um, if my case would be brought back sooner rather than later. You know, the courts were so backed up and everything was unclear. Um, You know, we didn't have a vaccine. We, everything was still pretty new in the summer of 2020. Um, But the conversations started to happen.
it was around this time um, that I heard from a friend that my ex, who I haven't really talked about in the last few episodes, um, had a new girlfriend and that they were pretty serious. Um, he and I hadn't spoken um, in about a year and a half, which was why he wasn't in those episodes. We hadn't spoken or seen each other. And there were points in those months or in that year and a half um, that I, I, I got to a point where I had to stop. I had to ask friends to stop um, giving him information about me or about my recovery or about the trial um, because I was hearing from you know, acquaintances and we had a lot of friends, you know, acquaintances and friends in common because we grew up in the same city and went to the same high school. Um, and people were asking me things or telling me that they knew about certain updates and that they had heard them from him. And that was upsetting to me because it gave the appearance that he was still active in my life and he wasn't so I asked friends to stop giving him information so that he would have to stop giving people updates on me when we were not friendly um not in a good place um but when I heard that he was seeing someone and that they were really serious I the sting of hearing that he was seeing someone wasn't wasn't too great at all. It was it seemed like a natural progression at that point. Um, I had been in an eight month relationship that was very fairly serious at that time. So and um, leading up to COVID and quarantine, so I of course was curious, you know, about the new relationship, but was not upset. But in asking questions about who he was dating and for how long, um, something new came into the picture that did mean something to me. That they had met, he and, and this gal that he was um, dating seriously, not in the time since we hadn't been talking, um, but in November of 2017. That was four months about before the attack and we were broken up at that time so fully within everyone's bounds to be dating someone but when I heard it all of us and that timing all of a sudden my mind reshuffled through all these memories and it was like really fast and something clicked I had spent you know at this point two years and some change almost two and a half years um trying like trying to make what happened make sense trying to make what happened between he and I make sense you know like thinking through all those memories like the week before the attack, asking him if he wanted to finally make a decision in or out and him saying that he needed 
more time to decide, which I didn't know what that meant. Like waking up and knowing from the moment that I woke up from surgery that he seemed different somehow. And nobody being able to get a hold of him, him being sometimes super present, you know, for the big moments and then being hard to get in touch with or saying that he was doing something that he wasn't, him seeming to be able to move forward with his life after I got out of the hospital somewhat undeterred, you know, going to Coachella a month and a week or something after my attack and going to Electric Daisy Carnival and buying a car, you know, a brand new, very expensive car within two months of the attack, um, going to karaoke nights, going to Lakers games in such, um, you know, a different tone than the way that the turn that my life was taking as a result of the attack, you know, him going for long walks with me while I was trying to get him to act normal with me and normal being inseparable best friends gobbed on top of each other all day long all the time and instead getting from him the answer that I was mistaken about those memories that those memories were a creation of my own a distortion of my own that weren't real and that I was remembering through rosy colored lenses because I desperately needed just someone, anyone, that it wasn't ever going to be him. Um, all of those things started to reshuffle in a way that made them finally make sense. Like when I think about it through an empathetic lens or from his shoes, he meets someone that he thinks he could be really serious about. And then in February of 2018, this me that he had been in a relationship with gets attacked in a brutal home invasion, an unbelievable lightning strike of a scenario, you know, reaching out to him for support and um, to be the one who's there. He's being leaned on by me and my family and everything is getting really heavy and really serious and he's trying to keep this the hope alive in this new relationship and trying to look like a good guy for the cameras, you know, not walk away from me at this horrible time in my life, you know, and have the social consequences of that. Trying to juggle that with also trying to build confidence with someone new who's observing you engaging with this old girlfriend in this way and, you know, trying to move forward and convince her that you're a likable, fun, lovable guy who's not completely still entrenched in the drama happening in his ex-girlfriend's life. You know, I I can see, I don't agree with 
the approach by any means, but I can see all of a sudden when I hear this, why these things happened. And I had been, for, since the attack, so ridden with guilt for my having the person that I had dated for a couple months in the hospital. He, he, my ex had told so many people that that was why he was distancing himself from me, that I had broken his heart um, by having that guy be in the hospital. Um, you know, I had friends give me lectures about how selfish and unkind that was to him. And I felt it. I felt like an awful person, selfish and cruel that I had done that to him. And I had gone over, you know, the, what I realized I had been obsessing about all those years was what made me, what changed his mind from the day before to when I woke up from surgery what all of a sudden made me unlovable and not who he used to stand outside with a boombox and, you know, signs that say sweet things about our future. And I had spent so many, like, hours on hours, on days, on days, on months, on months, obsessing about what I had done wrong what I could do to make myself lovable again, to convince him that I was still me, that I wasn't broken, that I wasn't this selfish, unkind, cruel person that hurt him when he was just trying to support me. All of a sudden, I realized that he had kept this from everyone. And that loop that loop that I had been trapped in all of a sudden evaporated and I was free. Because everything was so uncertain and like the way things were coming back in the summer of 2020, mm -hmm imagining being in a courtroom and how backed up the courts were seemed far-fetched. It did. And then for a while they were saying, um, you'll be on an iPad on the stand. Oh, that it would be virtual. It would be virtual. Oh my God, I forgot about that. That broke my heart. Yeah. The idea that like, like people say that phrase, have your day in court. Yeah. But the idea that he wouldn't have to, and I don't know that it affected him at all, to have to see me, to have to see my family. I don't know that it penetrated his world whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But the idea that, like, I would experience that whole reckoning yeah. from my apartment, yeah, it just felt like I would always... Just unfinished. It would feel like a dream. Yeah. Like, like surreal. Yeah. They talked through so many different 
scenarios like that, like a virtual <laughs> trial, um, him being on a, an iPad from his cell, uh, I, needless to say, that sounded like not at all what I was hoping for. I think ultimately it was maybe in August or September of 2020 that we got word that my trial was one of the first um, to be put back on the court's calendar and that it was scheduled for to begin jury selection in late October of 2020. So we all get back to planning, you know, in a slightly amended way, uh, my family coming out, well, not slightly, significantly, <laughs> um, my family coming out to Los Angeles uh, for the trial. Um, friends of mine that had been planning on coming, obviously, you know, at that time didn't feel comfortable and rightly so taking the risk to travel, especially through LAX and to LA. Um, so it was my immediate family planned to come out and we continued to get updates uh, from the court and from the detective and the DA about what the safety precautions would be um, while we were there. Uh, and that just, you know, as as we were planning, we just tried to to roll with those punches as much as possible. I just kept thinking because of what had happened in the past that like something's going to happen and it's not going to start. Like, mm. And I think maybe the more we were all still doubting that it would happen mm -hmm. finally. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think I was, my, my hopes had gotten up and my heart had gotten squashed so many times when it came to this trial happening that my excitement level was pretty measured um and I was prepared for it not to happen or to continue to get postponed but they in late October of 2020 did begin jury selection and they said it was likely that it would be a little longer than normal because COVID. So Rashad, uh, my attacker, was present for those first jury selection dates, and he acted the way that we had seen him acting in court um, during the jury selection. I, I had the option to be present at the jury selection, but with things being the way they were and, and them saying that um, it would probably take a little bit longer than normal, which I think is typically a handful of days usually. Um, but they said it might take a couple of weeks. Uh, but we got word after maybe a day of jury selection that uh, Rashad had been acting in a way that they decided to send him to another psych evaluation. But this time he was going to see a doctor that he had already 
previously been seen by, um, and that it wouldn't be a full, because when I heard that, I was like, okay, so a 60 day (laughs) postponement, but they said, because he was being seen by a doctor that already had a history with, of him, um, that it was not a full 60 day evaluation, but just another check-in um, to confirm his competency. And I'm sorry if you can hear my dog Cookie uh, heavy sighing in the background of this episode. She insists on being in here with me, but does not seem to understand the concept of um, not making sound while I'm recording. But as uh, Rashad got evaluated um, by this doctor, they continued the jury selection, and it was moving more quickly than they thought. Um, so my family bought their tickets, and they flew out to Los Angeles. So it was two years, and then, but then it was a year longer until... When did we come? November of 2020 is when we when they finally opened the courts back up, and we were able to come out. And I think yours must have his must have been one of the first trials. So my family flew out, and my mom rented an Airbnb for her and my stepdad and my two brothers to stay in. My family came out. They stayed in an Airbnb in near my apartment. Do you remember the Airbnb? I get really nostalgic for that house. I do because... No, I understand why. It's just that that house was so ugly. It was so <laughs> strange. My mom booked it. Like, bless her heart. Also, do you remember when my mom and her husband Dave got lost? They got lost. Mm-hmm. So it's up in kind of like this windy roads neighborhood. This house was definitely straight out of the 70s. It was not like a luxury mansion. It was a nice house, but it was built in 1972 and left from that point. Yes. Locked up Like we imagined some like grand old Hollywood star from like the 40s. (laughs) (laughs) Built that in the 70s and then no one touched her. Yeah, she shut her up and she left her there and we found her. (laughs) <laughs> it was like it was enough bedrooms and it was enough space for everybody but it was like a pea green kitchen none of the lights worked mm-hmm. I remember it was difficult to find lights there was a huge deck but you couldn't go out on it because there was mornings that the deck would You'd fall off mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and my dad also flew out um at the same time as my mom and my stepdad and my brothers. And I haven't talked about him a lot in the episodes since the hospital because um, that day, I think the day that he flew out to Los Angeles to be with me in the hospital after the attack, he found out that um, his wife uh, had cancer. Um, and they had a really difficult battle and 
she passed in um, April of 2020. Uh, they had been married for 25 years, and it was really isolating and hard for him. Um, you know, he couldn't have help in the house, and we had a virtual funeral for her. Um, and it, it had been a really hard uh, few years for my dad. But he, um, there was no way he wasn't going to be there. And he booked a ticket and he flew out to L.A. Um, and got a hotel near my house. So things were moving along and, and it was starting to feel really real, um, that it was going to happen. And we had, we knew we had a new judge, um, Judge Lauren Weiss Bernstein. And based on the experience and experiences we'd had, uh, we were all kind of anxiously awaiting what the tone of the courtroom would be. And that's when we had a new judge Yep, which we didn't know what to expect. We just had a name because we'd had really terrible experiences and we'd had really good experiences. Mm -hmm. So I think we were all hopeful. Hopeful, yeah. But also once we kind of had been in a few, knew to not to like we knew that we wouldn't know what to expect. Yes. Like in terms of judges, in terms of the courtroom, uh, it getting interrupted. I think the only real new thing was, like, it was actually a trial now. So they finalized the jury selection, and they set a date for the trial to start. Um, I think the date was November 3rd, 2020. And they estimated that I would testify the 5th and the 6th. Um, and we got the final word on what the COVID protocol would be in the courtroom. And I think it, it wasn't a surprise that it would be different than normal. Um, but I was afraid of what the impact would be. Because masks were, I mean somewhat new to our lives at that point. Now it seems very mm -hmm. regular and everyday to wear a mask, but I had envisioned the importance of my testimony is to feel what I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. And I just was so afraid that none of that would come across if I, my face was covered. Right, you know? right. Like, it's really important for the jurors to see how much this impacted your life. And if all they can see are your eyes, then it felt like it would be like a little robot on the stand. Not that I didn't want everybody to be safe and not that I didn't think that that was the exact right thing to do at that moment and thankful that we were having it at all. Mm -hmm. But I do remember being really afraid because, it, you know, we didn't know what the outcome would be. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know if that, if me wearing a mask would drastically change people's minds right. about the severity of the crime. Mm -hmm. 
So like Meg and I talk about in, in those clips, um, I was nervous about the impact that my wearing a mask while testifying would have. And also the underlying awareness and, and fear of COVID um, amongst the jurors in their wanting to be there, their, you know, if they were going to be engaged, if they were going to be thinking about it, you know, thinking about COVID instead of thinking about the case. Um, my mom's going to take you through in a minute what it was like that the first day we arrived in court, which like I said, was my, my day to testify was a couple days into the trial and I wasn't allowed to be in the courtroom while the trial was underway, um, outside of my testimony because I was a key and the only witness. Um, but the COVID protocol in the room was that everyone, including me, including the judge, the jurors, the lawyers, all wore a mask. Um, there were plastic partitions around the witness box, the the where the judge sat, uh, the jurors box, um, the court stenographer, and then everybody was spaced out six feet around the room. So instead of the jurors sitting next to the witness stand they were spaced six feet apart um, all around the courtroom. And I was allowed, at first it was going to be one person um, in the room with me or as an advocate for me. And it ended up being that they allowed two people, but they, if they were from different households, had to be separated six feet apart in the back of the room. Um, and also you know, because everyone was so spaced out, they had TV screens, um, around the room to help people see, uh, but all of these things were contributing factors to that. I wasn't sure how they were going to affect the way this trial went court was empty. I mean, and they were hardly any, there was hardly anybody in there. We all came out, but we couldn't sit in the courtroom. We had to, and you couldn't be in the courtroom the whole time, which we didn't know. Because? Because um, you were a witness. So you could only be in there when you were testifying. And then only two family members could be in there. So we had all of us in, um, and a couple of your friends were out there, and we just all had to sit in the hall. If, we, if it wasn't our turn to be in there, we rotated. Um, but that was hard, hard not to be in there and hear the whole thing. And the jurors were obviously nervous about being, they were kind of afraid of COVID like everybody is and or was, and they had them all sitting six feet apart. It was totally safe, in my opinion, because everybody was separated and there was plexiglass everywhere. Even as even the witnesses had to wear masks and the judge, and so it was pretty safe. Um, yeah, the jury was spread so far out that in the actual jury box there were only like three or four jurors, mm -hmm. and then the rest of them were sitting in the like galley where it should have been filled with your like 
your support people, people. Um, and media, but none of none of that got to happen. So we all walked in that first day, and I knew it was my day to finally testify, and they told me that that would probably take um, one and a half to two days of the trial, my testimony, and then the cross-examination. So we walked in, it was me and my family, and then, um, like we said, you know, a few friends that were also there to support that uh, most everyone would sit in the hallway. And we sat in the hallway um, waiting for them to come and tell me it was time. And I asked my mom and my dad to come sit in the courtroom um, for that first day while I testified. So I was sitting out in the hallway, um, and I was doing all these things. I kept going into the bathroom to give myself little pep talks, and I kept stretching my arms and shoulders, I remember. And I was walking back and forth down the hallway and just trying to, um, like, I was trying to kind of feel big, you know, like, puff out my shoulders a little bit and feel powerful. I had done a lot of, um, during COVID, I started exercising a lot, um, around my apartment building outside. And, uh, I, as I was exercising and running and working out, um, my motivation was always to, feel really capable and really strong on the stand in front of him and I would motivate myself by saying like run like run like he has your little brother you know like and run as fast as I could um and I that morning before I testified I I did my usual sprints that I would was doing and still do almost every day, um, behind my apartment building. And I had worked out and really just wanted to feel as strong and as ready and as present as I could for this moment. I think we talked about that too. Like it was so frustrating while it was happening and all the delays were just so like, rage-inducing at times, but when you finally got to go on the stand and you did have some, like, I don't know, maybe regression with PTSD, you at that point had been in therapy most of the time Mm -hmm. from the attack to then, and you had the tools to calm down, to deal with the PTSD that you did not have straight after the accident. So the detective came to get me and told me that it was time and um, I walked in to the courtroom and walked around the back. It was a new courtroom to us and looked around and 
saw all the jurors all spaced out and I remember them all kind of wide-eyed looking, watching me as I walked up to the witness stand, I'm sure trying to assess. Um, they didn't know any of the story, really. They knew the charges, but they didn't know the story. So I'm sure trying to assess who I was. Um, and I wasn't sure up to, up to that point if Rashad would be in the room and he wasn't. And we found out, um, in one of the following weeks why. Um, and I walked up to the stand and I got sworn in and I, you know, luckily I had had practice doing this, um, in the preliminary trials. So, or in the preliminary hearings. So I of course was nervous because this was, this was it. Um, but I, and I was, you know, nervous about the impact of the masks and the, and COVID and all of it, but I felt, I felt pretty prepared. So the DA started off by asking me my name, like last time. And from there started asking me questions about what happened that night. And the types of questions they ask are, are very very much to paint a picture of the scene so that there's no ambiguity about any detail or any potential question of how it could have possibly happened differently. So I, I say that to say that the the types of questions that the prosecution, the DA would, would ask me were, you know, what did you hear? Um, why did you think it was that? What time was it? How do you know what time it was? Um, when you saw him about, you know, what angle was your bed facing to the door? Um, how many feet away would you say that he was? Uh, it was, it's a mix of questions like that, really, really detailed, um, scene setting questions. And then also you can't say, "Uh uh-huh. Um, you can't say, I guess, you know, you have to answer in the definitive with, with yeses and nos. Um, and you know, if you are describing, um, like a, a comforter, let's say you describe it in excruciating detail, um, or it feels excruciating, but it's all to prevent there being any question about the understanding of every single person in the room being clear and being the same. So we went through what happened that night uninterrupted because Rashad wasn't there, except for, you know, the defense every so often would have an objection. Um, but the objections were, it wasn't, it wasn't like I was hammered with objections. Um, they happened fairly frequently, but it definitely, it didn't feel like I was being bullied, I guess I'll say. Um, but the, 
you know, I was, I was under, getting an understanding of when the defense would object, um, what her narrative that she was trying to tell, an alternate narrative to mine, was. And something that I didn't talk about in the last episodes was that the statement that I had given to the detective in the hospital was very devoid of emotion. You know, knife was held to her throat. The victim and the the attacker struggled. Um, They fell off the bed. They struggled again. But it was, you know, it wasn't the same as hearing it from me or hearing it from him. It was, you know, an observation of my recounting of it. And so there was definitely no, like, get the fuck out of my house (laughs) in there. It was, it's, you know, a statement like that is, is not an emotive narrative. So I remember in my very first testimony uh, that I gave to the DA, I remember when she asked um, that moment in in the bed when I kicked him off, you know, instead of we struggled and we both fell off, I told her I got my legs underneath him and I kicked him off the bed and he was looking down at his hands and I sat up and I said, And I saw my fingers and I said, you cut my fucking fingers off. You cut my fucking fingers off. I'm going to fucking kill you. And I remember seeing her face (laughs) when I said that because she had no idea that that was what happened. Um, And I just remember seeing her eyes get wide. And then maybe I, maybe this is just me but a little bit of a smile. So the thing I remember being especially hard about that first day of testifying um, was I had seen a couple of the, the photos that were taken of me immediately after um, I arrived at the hospital. Uh, but I hadn't seen all of them. And while I was testifying at the trial, um, the DA brought up the photos of me, which I've shared to our Instagram account, extraordinary.podcast. Um, and they're really, really hard to look at. And this was my first time seeing them was, was on the stand. And I think intentionally so that I would have a real reaction to them. And that, that was the first time that I remember being so struck by, um, my eyes in, in those photos because I, I remembered the, the blood and I remembered that but and I I didn't know what my injuries looked like really that close up but I remembered the blood but 
it was definitely my my eyes that that were hard to look at in those photos and it was also um in the trial while I was on the stand the first day uh the first time that I heard the 911 calls which um I played in the in episode 2 at that point my my mom and my dad were in the back and hearing my how scared my voice sounded I remember um tears started to fall into my mask and I think that was the first time that I started to feel a little bit less scared about my emotion coming across to the jury because it just, I think they could feel it. So we finished that day, um, and I wasn't finished testifying or being questioned by the prosecution, um, but we reached the end of the day, and me, my family, and the friends that had been sitting in the hallway all headed back to this um, (laughs) retro 70s Airbnb to, I don't know, um, just be together. It was nice, though, to go... And I was so, like, I was a a supporter, obviously, like most of us were. But it was obviously much more difficult for your parents seeing you on the stand, seeing the photos, all that stuff. And obviously very draining and difficult for you to relive it over and over. But it was so nice for me and I think everyone else at the end of the day to go have a big family style meal and just not no one talked about it. It was like it was very briefly spoken about, and then we just hung out, and it was like a nice. Um, and people put on Netflix and watched yeah, the game. Yeah, there was football on, right? Mm-hmm. And it was just it was like a nice wind down instead of us all going to our individual houses and being like, "What the fuck?" and I, you know, getting on social media and just like tuning out. It was a really nice like there was a decompress decompress kind of community aspect to it of like you know, sharing a big meal and then going home. And I think that helped mentally for everyone who had to, you lived through it, right? And you've lived through it probably every day since. But for the rest of us, there were so many things, especially the visuals, you know, that I know a lot of people had a hard time seeing so then to go back together and be like, have a nice, happy family meal was a really nice, like, ending to the day, I think, of all the trial stuff. So we had a nice night. Um, and the next morning, we drove back to the courthouse and my testimony resumed. And I testified until about midday, and then we took a short recess, and it was time for the cross-examination. And the cross-examination 
was, like I said, I had been picking up pieces of what I could see the oppositional narrative that she was trying to breadcrumb throughout my testimony was going to be. And once she started asking me questions, um, it started to just kind of become a game of cat and mouse, um, or I guess maybe more like battleship where she would ask me questions and she would ask a few questions that were definitely going to be the answer in the affirmative. And then she'd answer a question that would be, you know, kind of a a battleship moment. She'd lob one over and say right at the end of it. And it was really slowing down to listen to in detail to every piece of what she was saying and not feeling pressured to answer instantly um, that I think, which I had thought about prior to being there that, you know, I'm allowed to take a second to process before I answer any question. So I remember one question, her, her angle um, that she was trying to get me to answer in the affirmative for was that he was there primarily to rob me, that that was his intent when he entered my apartment was to rob me. And that somewhere along the line, if at all, he decided to uh, sexually assault me, but without the intention of raping me. So I remember an example of one of the questions she asked was, uh, she was asking about him asking, uh, saying, uh, give me the fucking money. And she'd say, you know, do you remember him testifying to saying that the defendant said, give me the fucking money, where's the fucking money? And I would say yes. And then she'd say something like, so it, it's true that mostly he was asking you questions about, about where the money was, right? And I'd have to stop and say, those were some of the types of questions he asked, but I wouldn't categorize it as mostly. So that, that was the type of, um, I guess to me, it feels subtle, uh, the way that things were worded. So it was really, like I said, um, important. I think for anyone who's who's on the stand um, being questioned to know that you have the right to take a second and process before you answer. So I had been so afraid leading up to the trial that the defense attorney was going to get personal and and try to discredit me and make me out to be a liar and all of these things that I'd seen in the movies. And it 
it wasn't like that. It was mostly, like I said, she had an alternate narrative that she was trying to tell. And she, she did, um, bring up frequently that there were some, um, differences in the statement that was taken by the police, um, and what I was testifying to. There was one in particular about detail about, um, what he was wearing and I'm as sure as I could be, you know, knowing that often people's memories are incorrect, but in my mind, clearly he was wearing each time I had my eyes clearly on him, which was first in the kitchen, then when we were fighting. And then when he was running out, he was wearing blue jeans. And I told, I testified that I remembered punching him in the penis and feeling my knuckles on the zipper. And because of the evidence that they had, they had a pair of bloody jeans that he had in his backpack or that he had been wearing when he was arrested that did not have a hole in the thigh. And then they had sweatpants with like a really, like, um, like a pattern, like, like diamond pattern, a really distinctive pattern, um, that had a very similar blood stain, but that did have a one to two inch, uh, cut in the pants that correlated to a cut that he sustained that night that I didn't know about in his leg, a one inch stab wound into his right thigh. So when I finished testifying, um, on that second day, um, my, I walked out into the hallway and the trial resumed and my dad and I think both of my brothers were allowed to go into the courtroom together because I I wanted people in there so that we collectively and everybody alternated, um, but so that we can collectively had a sense of what was being said at the trial and what the evidence was. And I remember my, my dad and my, both of my brothers walking out, uh, I think it was the first hour after I had come out, um, into the hallway and my older brother walked up to me as soon as court let out and walked right up to me and gave me a really big hug and he had tears in his eyes. And right after that, my dad came up and gave me a really big hug and looked shaken. And my little brother went and sat down on the bench and just looked really quiet. And they said that they had watched, um, in the courtroom with the jurors and the attorneys, the video of the body cam footage from the first officer on the scene, which I shared a clip 
of it um, on the extraordinary.podcast account, but I've, I've debated sharing all of it because there's a part of it, and this is what they said made them upset. There's a part of it where the officer gets really close up to me and is talking to me, and my older brother said, it was your eyes. It was your eyes. So that clip that they had played in court um, of the body cam footage of the first officer on the scene, um, the officer was in the courtroom testifying to it. So after they were finished, uh, he walked out and there was a female officer there with him. And I had seen her in the hallway earlier in the day and, and kind of when I looked over, it felt like she was trying to catch my eye and then she smiled and we were all wearing masks. Um, but you know how you can tell when somebody smiles at you with a mask. Um, and so I smiled back, but I didn't recognize her right away. And after that day was over and, uh, the officer who was wearing the body cam came out from testifying. He came over and wanted to talk to us and wanted to talk to me. And we all shook hands and we talked. And that female officer came over um, and introduced herself and told me that she had ridden with me in the ambulance. And you could tell that she, she had been wanting to say this to me. Or had been, you know, waiting to tell me something. And she said, I'll never forget how strong you were that night. And I think we hugged even though we maybe weren't supposed to because of COVID. And um, I don't know. It was just, it, it was a really nice moment. So we all went back to the Airbnb that night, much like we had the night before, and had dinner and played games and watched football and talked about Netflix. I think we were watching The Queen's Gambit at that time, which was such a good show. Um, And it got time for everybody to start to go home. Um, And my dad, who had been hanging out with all of us, um at this Airbnb, um, got ready to go back to his hotel. But the thing that I get really nostalgic about about that house that I don't know if I've talked to you about is my parents, my mom and dad, got divorced when I was seven. Mm-hmm. And I have very few memories of, I don't know if I even have any memories of them together, maybe a couple. But that house, that 70s house, was the first time that I saw my mom and dad, my biological mom and dad, exist under the same roof and cooperate and laugh. I'm going to cry. Laugh at each other's jokes. Mm -hmm. I remember them being in the kitchen and, like, passing some utensil to one another. Mm -hmm. These two separate galaxies just touched like that. Michelangelo painting in the system chapel. <laughs> like, 
Like they probably did not actually touch hands. (laughs) (laughs) That's too much. I think, you know, my mom could see that, you know, my dad being there by himself and having to go back to a hotel alone with all of us going back to this house didn't feel right. So she said, invite your dad over for dinner and then said, does he want to stay? To me, that was a silver lining of this tragedy was that I got to see my parents. You know, my dad stayed at the house with my mom and her husband and my brothers. We woke up in the morning and we'd make breakfast together. I'd have a conversation with my dad and outside and then walk inside and talk to my mom. It was just like, I had never felt this sense of like, like family unit. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we'd always, you know, I don't, I don't want to make my parents feel bad, but like, We'd always been a guest in someone else's house, basically, mm-hmm. from as long as I can remember, you know. But it was finally like having my brothers and yeah. my two parents there. Yeah. It was like, no, we make sense. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not all guests and we're not all wrong. Mm-hmm. We make sense living together. So that was really nice. So the following Monday, court resumed, but I think everybody was pretty blown away by how meticulous all of the questioning was, how lengthy all of the questioning was, how seemingly duplicative a lot of the questions were, or obvious what the questions were, and also there were a lot of technical difficulties throughout the trial, like the TVs wouldn't work, the sound wouldn't work, the, the files wouldn't work which I think was just with with all of us kind of being at, at like a high stakes level of nervousness about how this would go, I think just made everyone kind of feel frustrated. But, you know, every day was was a huge, 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 huge amount of information that was uh, – brought up and and kind of downloaded into the case. Okay, so yeah, the first week when you were on the stand, we were all there. The second week, we went either individually or in pairs. I had my boyfriend come with me. Um, And because it's a long day, too. Yeah, it's a full day. It's a full day. You show up around like 8.39, and then you break for an hour or so for lunch and then you come back till four and the testimony is not necessarily thrilling it it is extremely tedious um it it, that was another thing that I was really surprised by being in court um because obviously we've seen it on tv right we're in on tv there's like it's it's like a quick 15 minute trial and all the big points are made and uh the jury clearly has a point of view on it but even watching like documentaries where they go through trials they don't show how many times they ask the same question and how if Mm. someone says he instead of who i assume was or you know they they had to have the right wording or there'd be an objection there'd be you know rephrase the question all of these things that you think are only said once or twice are said like 
maybe once or twice every 15 minutes and repeated and agonized over Mm -hmm. and seen from a different angle and just to like present to the court like this this audio recording has not been edited it's been verified and it's that the timing timestamp is correct this kitten is marching around (laughs) in combat boots They're back. Are They're back. Okay? So with that said, I want to walk you guys through some uh, more intriguing, I guess, pieces of information um, that came out as they brought new witnesses up to the stand um, after my testimony. And I'm going to go through them kind of rapid fire but I think there it's all gonna help it make sense um when I read to you what the my mom's notes from the closing statements from each of the lawyers so first I want to take you through what exactly he was charged with um so count one was assault with attempt to, to rape during a burglary count two was first-degree residential burglary. Count three was first-degree residential robbery, and there's a difference. Um, Count four, assault with a deadly weapon other than a firearm. Count five, aggravated mayhem, and I'll define what that means. And count six, criminal threats. And I remember being surprised at not seeing... um, assault or sexual assault or sexual battery or um, attempted murder um, in those charges. But I think when I explain the sentences they carry that uh, I, I can explain why. So let's take that first count, assault with attempt to rape during a burglary. So that count alone Um, carries a life sentence and it's specific to the pairing of an assault with attempt to rape um, partnered with a first degree burglary and the difference between burglary and robbery is that burglary alone is entering a structure with the intent to steal or to commit another crime inside of the structure And robbery occurs when a person takes someone else's property by force or by fear. Those two counts, I I don't remember the sentence that came with them um, upon a guilty verdict, but those two counts were not, um, did not carry a life sentence with them. Um, Assault with a deadly weapon other than a firearm, that is him um, assaulting me with the knife that one to me felt kind of soft um for the damage inflicted but um it's pretty straightforward uh and then aggravated mayhem so mayhem is the crime this is the definition mayhem is the crime of unlawfully and maliciously depriving someone of a body part disabling or disfiguring someone else's body part or rendering it useless 
cutting or disabling someone else's tongue, putting out someone's eye, or split, slitting their ne- nose, ear, or lip. Um, what are some examples? Beating another person while raping her, or punching someone into submission in order to cut off one of their fingers, which all of those are um, awfully specific. But the difference between mayhem and aggravated mayhem has more to do with intent. If you decided one day that you wanted to cut somebody's finger off and you went out to do just that, um, you would be guilty of aggravated mayhem. And aggravated mayhem also carried a life sentence. And then finally, the last count was criminal threat. Um, So in California, the definition is these are threats of death or great bodily injury that are intended to and that actually do place victims in reasonable and sustained fear for their safety or that of their families. And that is a serious charge that is charged as a felony. So these were the charges that the two attorneys were trying to prove or to disprove or at least poke um, holes of reasonable doubt into. So the defense attorney was primarily focused in my case on trying to create doubt around the attempted rape. And to do that, she was focused mostly on um, intent and on trying to prove that Rashad, like I said, was there to rob me and then a a sexual assault happened. And then the DA, the prosecution, went in um, with the burden of proof so that they, she was showing, creating a visual and irrefutable trail um, between, you know, Rashad entering my apartment and then our movements throughout the space um, based on where they found blood, where they found fingerprints, um, because in all of those pieces of evidence, there are breadcrumbs along the way um, that tell a story of someone who not only knew what they did, um, but knew what they were going to do. So I think the first thing, um, I'm going to kind of go in a chronological order. The first thing was the Doubletree Hotel that owned the apartment building that I lived in had security footage that police were able to match items of clothing um, to a man who shows up in the security footage the night of the attack. He's wearing the same sweatpants and he's wearing the same hat. Um, and the first time he shows up is at about 10 PM. So the attack happened at 3 AM. And that means that Rashad waited outside of my apartment to enter, um, about 30 feet away for about five hours. And 
you see him again at about 12 a.m. just kind of walking through the between the trucks in the intake area um and he's wearing a large backpack the police also found security footage of when Rashad boarded the metro train um, at the Bundy station after he evaded the police that night. So he calmly walks up to the train station. This is after the, while the police are chasing him that night and there's helicopters and stuff out looking for him. He goes to the elevator, I think, and then uh, gets on the metro train. And if you remember, a metro employee called and said that there was a seat that was soaked in blood. And that morning, as he got off the train, um, and that morning, he boarded the Bundy Metro, or boarded the Metro at Bundy in Santa Monica, and then took the train to Hollywood, back to where he was staying, and went to, I think, to an emergency room to get his hand looked at. And one of the witnesses that they brought forward was a a hospital worker that stitched up his hand in the ER that night, and she testified to that he told her that he had cut his hand slicing an apple and he needed stitches. But he did not tell her about or anyone about that wound in his leg. So Rashad was arrested at a parole meeting um, on the Monday following the attack. And after he was arrested, he makes phone calls to friends and family, potentially on um, advice from his attorney, to remove photos of him from his Facebook account that show him wearing articles of clothing that are going to be used in the case. So the red hat that he was wearing that night, I think, was in his profile picture on Facebook. Um, the sweatpants, the backpack, the shoes. Uh, he was calling and asking friends and family to remove all of these photos and all of those phone calls because he was calling from uh, the jail system, were recorded and were played in court. He also made phone calls to friends and family, and I wasn't in there, so I don't know exactly, and I don't have the transcripts, so I don't know exactly what was said, but um, from the notes that friends and family took uh, in the phone calls, he says, I'm going to go down for punching that girl is one of the things he said. He told someone that he dropped it. He was scared and said that he dropped his phone that night, which he did. He dropped a phone on my bedroom floor while we were fighting. And then the last clip that they played, he says um, that the quote from my friend that was sitting in there said that he said, that chicken head stabbed me in the thigh. So he was alleging that I um, stabbed him in the thigh, which I did not. Um, But that point comes up um, again later in a line of questioning from the defense attorney.
one of the witnesses that was brought to the stand was the surgeon who operated on my hand um, and on my elbow. So I had surgery on, you know, to close up all of my cuts and, and fix my hand in the ER the night of my attack and had a doctor in the, in the ER that was the one who gave me his phone number to put at my bedside in case I couldn't live with the pain. But after that, I uh, was in physical therapy and I kept complaining about um, feeling like anytime anyone touched my left arm, especially around my elbow, that there was, and that was the elbow that was injured, uh, that I felt pangs of like electricity, um, like an electric shock. And the guy that I was doing physical therapy with kept telling me stories about people that would lose a limb and feel phantom pains and kept telling me that it was just a phantom pain. This doctor that I met at UCLA um, told me that my ulnar nerve had been completely severed um, and they hadn't caught it in the ER. So it was a degenerative injury um, and by then I think about five months had passed and he told me that if if he didn't operate on it right away that I would there you know every day that passed I was losing the ability to get um feeling and sensation and and movement back um in the fingers that were damaged and he testified in court um during the trial that my you know the damage that I withstood to my body, um, especially on that, on my left elbow and left hand, um, made it so that I would always, there was no way for me to fully recover basically. Um, that I would always live with, uh, about 15 to 20% at the most of, uh, feeling, um, and functionality, uh, on that side. So that proved mayhem, um, which was that count that was focused on causing permanent injury to someone. Um, But I remember my friend saying that the defense attorney asked him specifically a couple of times if the injuries that I sustained to my hand could have possibly been uh, sustained while I was grabbing for the knife and he conceded, um, that that was possible. So finally the detective took the stand and the detective's testimony was next to mine, um, the longest because he had, um, had done so much investigation into exactly what transpired, you know, prior to that night, that night, and then afterward. And I've talked about him a little bit, um, in this podcast, but I, I want to say and be, (laughs) be as thankful as, as I am for, uh, who he is and who he was for us. Um, that being me and my, and my family, he, 
you know, I remember meeting the detective in the ER the first night. Um, he wasn't the first officer that I spoke to, but I was about to be wheeled into surgery. Um, and he had already been to my apartment and he came and sat by my bedside and he was asking for my statement and he asked my name and he asked my birthday and I said it was March 21st and he kind of smiled and he, he said, really? And I said, yeah. And he said, that's my birthday too. He was the, the detective that was with us throughout all of those years of back and forth. Um, he would call and check in on the family, check in on me, how I was feeling, how my physical recovery was doing, how my mental recovery was doing. Um, he would give us, he would call and leave messages and give us updates on when the court uh, meetings were coming up what to be prepared for, um, and, you know, just beyond keeping us updated and informed, he, he made this process, um, he made it warm, I guess, for us. We were never scared to call him and, uh, ask, you know, for advice or, ask how to handle something. Um, and I feel so lucky for that. I, I know that that's not everyone's experience when they report, you know, a, a rape or a sexual assault. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, I, I've heard so many stories of people engaging with, you know, the police or detectives of, at all and it being sometimes a, an extraordinarily re-traumatizing experience. But I would say the guidance and the warmth that we got from the detective on my case um, is what I would wish for everyone um, who's in this position. You know, we we all really trusted him and we all really um, relied on him and he, you know, he, he really, really cared about this case. And so did the DA, uh, you know, we, we knew from talking with them and the years that we worked with them that they cared about us. They cared about how we felt. They cared about how I felt. I can't imagine not having um, advocates like that in those positions. Uh, I really do think that that was something that I was very lucky to have and was blessed with. So my mom flew back um, from Wisconsin to LA for the closing arguments, which were on December 4th of 2020. So the DA led and gave her closing arguments. Um, and I won't read my mom's notes from that. Uh, I wanted to skip 
straight to the defense attorney's closing arguments and then read the DA's rebuttal. And these are my mom's notes um, that I'm reading from, so this is not word for word. Uh, it's it's probably my mom took really good notes. Um, but I want to say it's not word for word what the defense attorney's closing arguments were. And it's also, I stripped it down to a sp- specifically her um, closing arguments that were geared toward trying to disprove the intent to rape. It starts with her saying, I'd like to begin by expressing my utmost respect for Lee and what she went through that night. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We need to be objective. It is clear that there are crimes where there is evidence. I have no quarrel with that, no dispute. There are crimes that the prosecution has failed to prove. First, let's agree Lee is not a machine. She likely has gaps in her memory, and it's understandable that she could have created memories. There were times where there were contradictions. For example, she twisted her fist into his zipper. He was wearing sweatpants with no zipper but her testimony was so vivid, so convincing. The prosecution hasn't proven intent beyond a reasonable doubt because, one, Rashad never took out his penis. Two, he never took off his clothes. Three, he never took off her clothes. Rashad entered her apartment and used her knife. He didn't bring one with him. He peeked into her bedroom and walked away, hiding in the kitchen and armed himself. He was trying to leave, hiding himself from her. He was afraid. She told you his voice was quivering. If he was intending to rape her, why was he hiding? Give me money were his first words, not rape, when they were on the couch side by side. There was no evidence that he tried to touch her then. If he wanted to rape her, he could have done it then, so he did not intend to rape. Rape is a crime of violence. Not usually, I'm stealing, why don't I just rape this person? It was not his intention. The very fact that Lee was thankfully not raped, that is evidence. He touched her breast under her shirt. That is sexual battery, but that hasn't been charged. Lee said he told her to get on the bed and that he rubbed her vagina over her shorts. That is sexual battery. Lee said he asked for a condom. That is not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. He never took off his clothes. He never took out his penis. It was not his intention to rape. Regarding count one, you don't have evidence of intention. There was screaming, punching, kicking, but you never heard evidence of his intent to rape her. Rashad is six feet two inches tall and Lee is smaller. He had a knife. If he intended to rape her, he could have done it when they were on the floor. This count and its lesser have not been proven. So after the defense um, gives their closing arguments, uh, the prosecution, so the DA, is able to give a short rebuttal. And my mom took notes. I'm going to try to, my mom gets kind of amped up. I think she's a little amped up about what the defense attorney said. So some of it's in caps, but (laughs) um, I'm going to read from my mom's notes um, what the DA came back with as a rebuttal. Lee's testimony was very believable and very credible. 
When she talked to the detective immediately after the trauma, it was only for a few minutes. Do not reject testimony because of small inconsistencies. Consider whether certain differences are important or not. Um, when considering circumstantial evidence, you must only accept reasonable conclusions. What's reasonable? So then the DA goes through point by point um, all the things that it goes through point by point um, a bunch of pieces that the the defense attorney had tried to poke holes in, including um, that if he had wanted to rape me, he would have. She says in her uh, rebuttal, Lee did not get raped because she fought. Um, there's no way to come to any other conclusion. Lee fought for her life. She weighed her options and she fought. That is why she did not get raped. I remember sitting outside in the hallway on the bench. And like we said, this was, um, high COVID time. Uh, so there was nobody in there. It was just me sitting in, in the hallway by myself. And I remember court getting out and everybody coming out and, you know, that feeling, you know, it was still tension. We didn't know what the outcome would be, but there was this collective relief that we had made it through. Um, you know, like I, I think even the jurors, you, you know, we all were in the same hallway. Uh, you know, we didn't talk to each other. We didn't communicate in any way, but we had become a sort of community, you know, that a community of necessity that, um, we, we were going through this very weird thing, all of us together. mom and I went and sat out in the car, uh, in the, um, in the court parking lot and the jury went to deliberate and we had, it was at about half day at that point. And, you know, we, we didn't think it was realistic that the jury would only deliberate for that long, but my mom had to fly back, um, the next day back to Wisconsin. So they didn't come to a, uh, a verdict that first day. And then, um, the court resumed, I think maybe it was over a weekend or something, but my mom had, had gone and I was just kind of on call. I didn't, I didn't go to the court. I think there was another full day maybe of deliberating from the jurors. And I got a call at about three or maybe it was like two forty-five, and they asked if I could be there by three fifteen, And so I was ready and I jumped in the car and, um, I drove down there and I, I sat in the hallway and, and talked to the detective and, you know, about 10 minutes later, the jurors all came in and they all filed into the courtroom and it was, I walked in behind the detective and sat in the, to the side. And it was just really the, the judge, the stenographer, the jurors, um, the two attorneys, the detective and me. And the juror stood up and 
read each count um, one by one. For count one, assault with attempt to rape during a burglary, they found the defendant guilty. Count two, first degree residential burglary, they found guilty. Count three, first degree residential robbery, they found the defendant guilty. Count four, assault with a deadly weapon other than a firearm, they found the defendant guilty. Count five, aggravated mayhem, they found the defendant guilty of a lesser charge, which meant he wasn't charged with aggravated mayhem, he was charged with mayhem. Count six, criminal threats, they found the defendant guilty. So I think the oddest thing about that was that Rashad wasn't there. He, um, I guess every morning they had tried to go in and, and get him, uh, at the county jail and he would refuse to come and they would get, uh, the judge and the attorney would get an extraction order and they would extract him, bring him to the court. And every morning before the jury got there and before anybody got there, um, they would bring him in and he would, uh, act out and in much the way that he had in the prior hearings. Um, and really it, it sounded like he didn't want to be there, but they brought him every day. Um, and every day he had a chance, um, to sit in and listen and he chose not to. Rashad wasn't at his whole trial. He, as you know, um, he just, they tried every day to get him there and he fought and kicked and did everything he could to um, get out of being in there so that it would maybe look like he was mentally ill or, um, or that he was denied the right to be there. I don't know what he was trying to do, but he wasn't denied the right to be there. He refused. So after they read the verdict reading, um, the detective, I had to leave and the detective, um, stood up and I stood up and he was walking me out around the back. And I remember as I stood up, um, I looked, we were all wearing masks again, but, um, I stood up and I, I, as I was walking, I looked back at the jurors and there were maybe two or three of them that were really I maybe I was wrong but I felt like they were worried that they they wanted to know how I felt about the verdict and as I look back and as I walked out I um, smiled and I saw them smile back at me. And 
I saw them kind of take a deep breath. Um, and they knew that I was at peace. I didn't want to look weak. You did not look weak. Good. (laughs) You did. You looked very strong. Everybody said that. You remember what the judge said, and they never saw anybody um, that did that good of a job on the stand that was that good of a witness. Um, that you should be really proud of your daughter. And I'm like, I am. <laughs> well, they pulled you. Who was it that pulled you aside at the at the end? The judge? Uh, the judge did. Well... I think at that time we were asking the DA if I was asking the DA if for the verdict, if you could bring a friend because they had like at that point they were saying only family, you know, because because of COVID. COVID. And I had asked the DA, can she bring a friend to the verdict? Because we don't know when they're going to come back with the verdict. And I got to get home because I take care of my mom. (laughs) The house is. And so then she, stopped the judge while the judge was just leaving the room and she asked her if that would be okay and the judge said yes and then that's when the judge took a moment to tell me that what a good job you was and that that you did and that they never had a witness do that kind of a job on the stand and be that articulate and um brave and detailed and that that he never saw anything like it and that they might not ever again. I think all all the attorneys agreed as well. So, yeah, you should be proud of how you did on the stand, too. If you were scared, you couldn't tell. Thank you. I was really... I I just didn't want to look... I didn't want him to feel like he was winning against me, you know? Mm Mm-mm. But then he wasn't even in there, so that made it easier. (laughs) So it was another month before the sentencing. Um, The sentencing hearing was the first week of January in 2021. It was scheduled for January 6th, and my mom flew out for it, and my dad flew out for it. And I knew um, that I was able to give a victim impact statement um, at that sentencing hearing, which is basically you can speak for as long as you want about the impact that this has had on your life. Um, And you and your loved ones, your whole family, Everybody can give a victim impact statement at a hearing like this, and the judge will listen to you, um, and, um, you know, the defense side as well, um, is, you know, anyone who's a loved one or an advocate for someone on the defense's side is also able to give impact statements, um, and all of this is to weigh in for the judge to way um what the sentencing will be 
So I'm going to share on our Instagram account, extraordinary.podcast. I, I wasn't sure at first because this was before I had shared anything at all, really with anyone besides close friends about the attack. And I remember sitting down to write the victim impact statement. Um, and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to write it or if I was going to like it. Um, or if it was going to be bad, you know, I didn't, I didn't know. And I'm going to share on, on our Instagram account. I think I might've filled up a whole notebook of page to page to page to page to page. As soon the first time I sat down and my, I remember my hand was all black with ink and this was maybe two nights or a night before the, the, um, sentencing hearing. So I had to significantly cut down the victim impact state, my victim impact statement so that I, I didn't want to keep everyone there, you know, forever. Um, but we arrived that day and again, it, you know, there weren't many people in court because uh, for safety reasons. Um, but it was the judge, the stenographer, the two attorneys, the detective, um, me, my mom and my dad and my friend Meg. Um, and on his side, we hadn't seen his family, uh, at the trial, but they, his dad was there and his dad's wife was there. And I think, um, Rashad's girlfriend or former girlfriend maybe was there, um, all to speak on his behalf. So at that sentencing hearing, we were all in the room, uh, in the courtroom, and they brought Rashad in. And I think that time he was wearing like a, almost like a wooden looking mask or like a, not like a throwaway mask. It, it, it looked like a strange face covering that was strapped around his head. And he was in... I think he was in a wheelchair and he was um, handcuffed to the wheelchair and his feet were chained to the wheelchair. And I think um, to restrain him and to easily, easily be able to move him from place to place and safely move him from place to place. But he was brought into the courtroom and he was, you know, doing what what he was doing and yelling and and arguing with the judge and swearing and, and saying things like that. Not specifically about the case, just kind of yelling about things. Um, and they started to take him out and the, his dad had been in the hallway maybe. Um, and they asked him if he would uh, cooperate if they brought in his dad and if he could talk to his dad. So his dad came in and was talking to him and he started yelling back to him and, and he, you know, flipped for a second back, to, back to, um, who it, you know, I don't know him well, but he was himself. He wasn't the, the put on version um, and 
yelled a couple things back to his dad and his dad was upset and was asking him to calm down and asking him to cooperate and um, he said he didn't want to be there. So they wheeled him out and they took him out and I went first. I read my impact statement um, and I sat down and my dad went next he read an impact statement and in it he you know he talked about how he felt and about how this has impacted us as a family but he also extended um and i was so uh thankful and proud extended uh condolences to Rashad's family for their loss and what they'd lost. Um, and, uh, Rashad's dad went next and gave his statement, which was beautiful, but was private, I'm sure to him, so I won't share. Um, but then his, uh, his wife stood up and, and he tear, his dad teared up at the end of his statement and had to sit down. And after he sat down, his wife stood up and gave her statement. Um, and mostly they, they were asking for Rashad to receive uh, mental health care while he was in custody. Um, and she... Uh, while she was giving her statement, she looked over at me and she said that she was so sorry um, for what our family had been through and what I had been through. Um, and then his, I think, former girlfriend stood up and she also asked that he receive um, mental health help. Um, and she looked over and also said to uh, to me and to us, you know, like, I, I'm so sorry that this happened. And, you know, we were, we were on opposite sides of the courtroom and, um, opposite sides of, of the case. But I, it, I, it just, I was, I wasn't expecting it for, I don't think I was, I didn't know what to expect um, with all of us being in that room together, um, the two families of the two people involved. Um, and it, it was uh, a moment, I guess, that I just will never forget. So the judge listened to all of this and uh, proceeded to read through everything that he, Rashad, had been charged with throughout his life. And in doing that, it pieced together, I think, predictably, someone who had a very difficult and very violent life from when they were very young. Um, and again, that's private and that's his life. Um, so I 
I don't feel comfortable to say. But um, at the end of it, she said what her sentence was. She um, sentenced him to life in prison uh, plus three years for prior offenses. I believed, um, and I think you believed, that if he were to get let out, he would do this again. Hurt yes. someone else again, right? Mm-hmm. I'm so glad they caught him because I would hate to see anybody else go through what you went through. So I bet you're wondering like I was, what the hell was in that fucking letter? (laughs) That was exactly what I was waiting for throughout the whole trial. I was waiting for one day something to come out that said what had been written in that letter and what that letter meant. Um, But... I was able, after the trial was over, to finally learn what was in that letter. So, like I said, it was written by somebody that knew Rashad. And I was told it wasn't used in court because it would be too easy to poke holes in someone's account or someone's opinion. But... What was written in the letter um, was that, and I, I'm paraphrasing, that Rashad had done what he did to me to someone else before, and that he had, in fact, planned um, for quite some time, was what the person said, to come to my house and rape me specifically um and in the letter this person said that the woman he did this to before was in Arizona and basically implied that he had been watching me potentially from having seen me at some point in 2011. In the letter, this person also said that he was extremely unsafe around all women and children, that he had become inappropriately um, obsessed and sexual. He, anytime he was around a woman would inappropriately touch them. He would create stories around them being romantically linked, um, them having a future together. And in this letter, this person said that he was also dangerous to be around children. 
and the person in the letter begged um, for the DA to not allow him to be free because they said that he was an extremely dangerous man. Thank you guys so much for listening. I know this has been a long episode, um, but I, you know, this is really the last of the storytelling episodes. Um, I am going to do one more. Um, that's really just a conclusion. Um, and just, you know, what it's been like to do this podcast, what I've learned, um, how I'm feeling now. Uh, and then you'll also hear again from my mom, um, and my friend Meg and my friend Andrew, um, to get some of their, you know, the ways that they feel like this has changed them or, um, what they think someone else could maybe learn, um, from what they've learned. Um, so I think, you know, that this, the last episode, the conclusion, I think is going to be a really good one, but, um, thank you guys, um, as always for listening. And, uh, if you do feel inclined to share, please share. Um, and I'll see you next week.